Hi, this is Chris Marchand of Between the Songs Podcast. I'm here with Joe Cook to tell you about another podcast we've created, and we hope, if you've enjoyed Between the Songs, that you'll enjoy this one, too. It's called Nostalgic Future Podcast, and that's what it's all about. Chris and I dive deep into our nostalgia, all the pop culture stuff that we grew up with, and we examine how it's influenced our lives and how that continues today and into the future. So join us for fun discussions about some of our favorite movies, television shows, music, books. Really, nothing is off limits. We even have special guests on from time to time to talk about some of their nostalgic obsessions. Check out Nostalgic Future Podcast, available now on all the big podcasting apps. And you can also follow us on social media. It's Nostalgic Future Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we're at Past Future Pod on Twitter. Nostalgic Future Podcast, where the past is the only way forward. Hey, y'all, it's Phil Madeira from Nashville, Tennessee, and you are watching Between the Sheets. One more time. Okay. Hey, it's Phil Madeira, and uh, just saying hello, and you're listening to Between the Songs. Welcome to Between the Songs, the podcast. My name is Chris Marchand one of the hosts, and I'm here with my friend Joe Cook. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are pleased to be able to share with you an interview we just did with uh, multi-instrumentalist songwriter Phil Madeira, Nashville legend, you might say. He's played with everybody in, 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 in Nashville over the, over the course of many decades, uh, including Rich Mullins. And uh, he's on the, the Brother Keepers album. And uh, he, he, he toured with Mullins for time. And we're pleased to be able to have him on here today as a guest because he, his band, the Red Dirt Boys, is recording uh, their, they have a new album and they're doing an Indiegogo campaign, which is, which is like a Kickstarter, of, uh, a crowdfunding campaign. And uh, they are in the midst of doing it. They're wrapping it up. It's actually been backed, but uh, they are, uh, we, we wanted to send more love their way and, and hopefully get them a little bit more support in, in the final days of their campaign. So that's uh, the Red Dirt Boys. And they, they're, they're basically Emmy Lou Harris's touring band. And uh, we had Phil on the podcast. And uh, we just let him go for an hour, didn't we, Joe? Yeah, it was it was great. He's a he's a he's an interesting guy. He's very unfiltered. I think he uh, he's, he speaks his mind. I think people are going to really uh, uh, enjoy what he has to say, uh, whether they agree, disagree. I think they will uh, they'll definitely uh, be intrigued. When you've been around long enough, like like Phil Madera has then you can just kind of say what you want, you know, you know, he, he, he's, gonna, he's, he's, uh, he's been through it all. <laughs> he's earned that right. He's earned that right. Now, for me, what's interesting about this is, you know, growing up, we're in our late 30s, or are you in your, th- are you, you're not, you're not in your, I hit the big 4-0 recently. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm almost there, but, but you grow up and you, and you listen to these albums, and you're like, you become a fan, you read these liner notes, <clears throat> and this one guy's name just 
keeps popping up. And I, I honestly don't remember when I first understood that he existed as an artist. It might have been Steve Taylor. It might have been Amy Grant. Not really sure. But uh, for me, his, his first big claim to fame is showing up in Steve Taylor videos. And, uh, and he's also in a Newsboys movie, which is pretty goofy and funny to me. And uh, I think I slightly irritated him by asking him a question about that. <laughs> uh, what was his character's name again? It was... Uh... It is Hack the Clown. Oh, that's correct. Hack <laughs> that's the Clown. He's, he plays uh, a washed up clown that takes over the newsboys and uh, helps them. <laughs> helps them Because the newsboys, I believe they're gifted a, a, a circus and they're, they're put in charge of a circus. Yeah. I don't know how I never saw this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is just so bizarre. I, I like to call it the spinal tap of contemporary Christian music. That's what I like to call it. <laughs> Thank you, Steve Taylor, for bringing us that. But here's the thing about Phil Madera, though. If you go to his website, uh, philmadera.net, just just go to his uh, store page. Uh, look at all that he's done. Um, actually, his website's really cool because it has, has a great uh, bio uh, about his life. You get to hear kind of the flavor of his career, um, of his artistry. But he has just, just so many amazing albums. I know, uh, Joe, you've listened to a few yourself. And um, so it's worth checking out. Also, just as a reminder, uh, go to the, the what you're going to if you're if you want to support his Indiegogo, at least look at it. They have a great video of, of their songs. Kind of they, they are an Americana sound, the simplest way to describe it. Uh, but if you if you uh, search for Emmylou Harris's band Red Dirt Boys double record and that's on Indiegogo. There you go. You can find it. Joe, what else do we have on the podcast today? It's not just Phil. We have a, we're offering a little bit more of an extra. Okay, so last week uh, we did our tribute to Rick Elias. It's been two years since Rick Elias passed away, and we've been wanting to, uh, to celebrate his life and his music. And uh, uh, really, uh, just first I want to say a, a very big thank you to everybody who contributed to that. We had, I think it was 23 uh, of Rick's friends and collaborators who who just jumped at the chance to uh, be a part of that on today's podcast. Uh, we are going to be uh, sharing kind of an extended bit from last week's. Um, so uh, one of the things that was just absolutely awesome was, you know, we reached out, of course, we reached out to um, a couple of Rick's friends, I reached out to uh, Jimmy Abeg and also Ben Pearson. And uh, had no idea they were going to do this. The two of them got together and they just rolled tape and just uh, had a conversation about Rick, just sharing memories and stories and reflecting on uh, on Rick's final days. And it um, it really is quite moving and and really a, actually a really powerful uh, moment in uh, in our tribute to rick and so i I first want to encourage people if they haven't heard that um go listen to that episode um because i don't want any spoilers in today's because that's a really important part of of uh, last week's show but uh we had to edit quite a bit of that down uh you know we i think it was about 12 minutes long jimmy and ben's uh segment um they sent me over 20 minutes and so you know we had to chop quite a bit out of that um, including a, a pretty great story of the rags going to a restaurant in New York City that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty fun story. But we just, for time purposes, we had to, to take that out. We're going to present today, after Phil Madeira's interview, 
uh, stick around and we're going to have an extended version of uh, Jimmy and Ben's conversation. And we're uh, pretty thrilled to bring that to you. So that's our episode today. Quick reminder that in the upcoming months, we're going to be focusing on Rick Elias's music, going through his albums and uh, talking about his, his songs. This is going to be more of a fan podcast at the moment. And uh, hopefully you enjoy that. We want to introduce you all, if you're not familiar, uh, to Rick's music. Uh, and, uh, and to just take you through a kind of a, a survey through his work and his career. Uh, but today, today we have an extra with Jimmy Abag and Ben Pearson. But now we're going to hear from Phil Madero, his life and career. I do have a question for you, Phil, and, and, and this is a question that I, I actually feel bad asking about because it's kind of absurd, but I grew up wa- being a fan of the Newsboys movie down, you know, under the big top. And, and, and I knew the whole time, I'm like, oh, that's that guy, Phil Madeira. He, he's, wait, he's a clown in this movie? And, and, and also, I, I love Steve Taylor, and so I, I know that you were in his video, um, Smug, and um, I guess uh, he, Christian music is so bizarre. Like, like, we have this little bizarre subculture, but you played this interesting part in my life, and, and you, you played a comedy role in, in this dumb little movie that Steve Taylor made, and I guess... I, I don't even have a question other than to say what, what maybe what was that like? And, and, and uh, what, what's your, what's your story about that film? And uh, what, what can you share about that absurd little moment in your own life? Well, I mean, it's not a, it's obviously, it's not a significant moment in terms of my work or any of that, you know? Oh, that breaks my heart. To, I, I can't believe that. But, um, <laughs> you know, Steve is, you know, Steve, he remains a, uh, a friend of mine, a uh, great friend, actually. Um, uh, well, I, the only thing I'll say about that, and of course, the newsboys are also, uh, friend, I mean, particularly Peter Furler. I'm, I'm still in touch with Peter. You know, I'm, I, I think you're aware of this. I've, I've been done with Christian music for many years. I have very little interest. I'm always happy to, t- you know, to answer a question, but I, it's also, you know, I don't see it as, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it, it was someplace I wound up for a while. Steve asking me to be in that movie was fun. And, and, you know, actually, I guess I can act a little bit, um, but I, um, but what was funny was going to see the premiere because there was a movie theater in cool Springs, which is no longer there down in uh, near Franklin, Tennessee. And so that's where they had the premiere. And I took my kids, one of whom was, I don't know. Do you know what year that came out or not? Like 90, uh, 96, 97. Okay. Like so, that. uh, yeah. So, you know, my oldest kid was, I think it might've been earlier than that, but 
anyway, 90s, let's say my oldest daughter was, I think was five and my youngest was three and they were sitting there watching this. And my daughter, Kate, who turned 31 yesterday, looks up at me as I'm on this gigantic screen. She's like, dad, are you a movie star? <laughs> and I just said, no, honey, I'm a rock star. <laughs> but, That's right. but, um, yeah, but that was, you know, that was a long time ago. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. I wish it were on, I wish it were more readily available because it, yeah, you know, I'm sure my kids would, well, the one that the, my, my child that actually does uh, smoke a little, a little weed, which I have, I, I, I you know, I don't condemn that. Uh, uh, I wish it were, I'm sure she'd enjoy watching it that way i'm sure it'd be probably even more enjoyable that way but uh, anyway yeah i think maybe the the takeaway for me is just something simple which is you made me laugh you know Good. as a kid you know as a as a teenage kid i'm just like this is funny i i, I enjoy this movie you know and i'm so glad to hear it that's that's my takeaway <laughs> sure well plus every rock star has to take a stab at acting at some point there you that's go. right there you go that's right that's right <laughs> Thanks for indulging me, Phil. My pleasure, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm good. I probably need to head out, but I'm good to go. And thanks for your time. I'll let you guys take over from here. And uh, blessings to you. You too, Chris. God bless. Cheers. First off, before we get into the new project and everything, thank you so much for, uh, you know, for being a part of our episode last week for uh, celebrating Rick Elias. And, uh, man, that was, uh, you know, there, there are not a lot of things in this world that give me hope anymore but man your story rick's story that was beautiful that gave me hope yeah it's a pretty remarkable um it's you know the intersection of uh, my loss of someone to cancer followed by rick a, you know almost exactly a year later wanting me to share his cancer journey with him was super redemptive, you know, and um, I had actually been writing a book about the journey. I actually, I threw it out. I just thought, well, you know, it's such a horrible story. And if you, if I can't find redemption for the main players in a story, it's like, not sure it's, helpful to tell but the but rick uh the adventure with rick was pretty amazing because we really you know we didn't talk for seven or eight years and i didn't even know who he was when i was at this event it was actually a sammy corner uh show in a friend's backyard and i looked over and i saw this big lug just looked like a looked like one of these guys that you would have seen at cornerstone festival you know, just a big fan, you know, just a large guy, Bermuda shorts and a ball cap did not look like a rock star. I didn't even know who it was. I, you know, and then that guy comes up to me and says, well, I actually probably can't tell you what he said because it was profane uh, or, or maybe more obscene, but he was like, sorry, Philly, I'm a blank, you know, and I'm like, I, it took me to hear his voice before I knew who he was. He had changed so radically, but, um, and thus began that journey. So yeah, I'm grateful. I actually heard from Linda the day you guys broadcast that thing, Rick's wife, 
Linda sent me a message just how much um, the story of Rick and me meant to her, you know, and of course she and I were always golden. She's, she's, she's a good person. And, uh, you know, she, she, anything about Rick that was going on, good, bad, indifferent, she knew it, you know, so. Oh, well, I love hearing that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I was at that concert 2019, the Rick's Benefit. Uh, what was that like for you being up on that stage that night? Well, it was really, um, you know, the band that I play with, Red Dirt Boys, and, you know, we've toured with Lou Harris for, um, gosh, you know, 12 or 13 years. So we are a very tight precise although albeit loose the music we play is loose but we were dialed into each other we know how to work together so that is the paradigm that i operate under when i record when i perform i'm playing with brian owings chris donahue will kimbrough and it's it's going to be good so to all of a sudden be tossed into a situation playing music that i that that i didn't know although i played all over that record um uh with a band that hasn't played the music since it was recorded uh with a singer who is not even sure if he's mentally going to be there i mean I, you know and you may remember that i was actually the band leader of that thing rick had returned which was remarkable that he would ask me to do it but it was um, a lot of pressure, a lot of um, not really, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, what's the word? Just it was driving blind in a lot of ways because we didn't know if Rick could remember the lyrics, which he didn't. Um, I think we had one day of rehearsal, maybe two. I can't remember. You know, the funny thing is, Joe, I. I didn't really think that record was, uh, you know, as great as the plan was and as much fun as it is to record music. I wasn't a fan of the record. I wasn't really a fan of a lot of Rich's work. I was more of a fan of Rich. I liked his journey. Uh, Rich, I, I don't know if I said Rich or Rick, but I'm talking about Rich Mullins. Um, I found him intriguing. You know, he was iconoclastic. He was a dichotomy. He was a very conflicted individual. But playing those songs that night, my favorite one was, ironically, Michael W. Smith performed one of those tunes. And it was, it was the songiest of the songs. It was the most sensible in terms of how it was structured. It just felt like a, you know, a song that, I don't know, Michael McDonald had written or something. Um, but the other songs, I don't know. I think I'm answering, taking way too, I should have just said it was great. <laughs> <laughs> that's the oldest, you know, by the way, that's the oldest song on the record. I think Rich wrote that in like 1974. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that, that well, you're really dialed in. Yeah, so I, you know, I emotionally was not attached to what we to the music, um, although so many of the parts on that record, I I'd forgotten that I had 
I'm just all over that record. I'm playing lap steel. I'm playing organ. I'm playing guitar. I'm playing baritone guitar. I'm playing accordion. It's kind of my life as a session player, almost magnified on that record. But to do it live was, there was just a lot of pressure on that gig. Um, how did you like the gig? That I, I'd be more interested in knowing what, because I, I just was, yeah, there was a lot uh, of pressure. So yeah, I come at it from a just you know totally different perspective. Uh, in that it was one, of, it was probably one of the most moving concerts of my life. And uh, wow. I, I, I I say that you know full well knowing that you no, know, I mean it was it Rick Elias's greatest performance. Now I saw Rick you know when he was a rock star, and you know and and when he carried the stage like a rock star, and you know and when he, I mean I remember seeing him, uh, you know, like over 20 years ago and you know the rest of the band leaving the stage and you know it's just him and man of no reputation you know by himself and and then the you know juxtapose that with you know that night where he's relying on mark robertson just to get through that song but there was i don't know that to me there was something so beautiful about um just the uh just that aspect of these you know brothers this band of brothers rallying together and keeping it going and uh to me my favorite performance of the night was um i don't know it's hard to say but but uh you did not have a home just watching how rick kind of pulled it together on that one and man they uh that to me felt like well this is like the last true performance of a ragamuffin band you know and you know with, with just going just the sharing vocals between jimmy mark and rick and uh, he struggled a little bit, but not too much on that one. And I thought, well, that was that was a that was just a, a nice moment. And a friend of mine that was sitting next to me told me afterwards, he goes, you know, he goes, I was rooting for him the whole time. Yeah, I think everyone was. You know, Joe, I think what was really fantastic about that night was was Rick's. I mean, Rick was completely exposed. You know, he was there was no pretense of being a rock star. Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew Rick, Rick well enough to sort of recognize the sheen of, you know, who you can pretend you are when you're thin and you've got rock star hair and you, you're allowed to swagger. And honestly, you know, Rick, uh, interestingly enough, Rick was not at his best when he had money and probably not at his best, you know, when he was living the dream, he was really at his, I mean, honestly, he was at his best when he was dying um, because his vision was clear on what was going on. And, and maybe perhaps this is what can be said of most of us money for me has never been, I don't know. I just, I, I, it's never been why I do anything. Um, when Rick had his taste, it was really, Rick really changed. You know, when he had that thing you do, he immediately bought a Mercedes. Uh, I remember him saying, man, just got to sit in the car. Come here. You got to sit in the car. I mean, this is, I don't know what year, 90 something. So I get in the car and, 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 the Frank Sinatra song is playing. I got the world on a string, you know, and it was like, um, and that's, you know, he, he had, he went from living comfortably in a modest home 
uh, a really nice modest home to all of a sudden feeling like, oh, okay, I can buy the big McMansion now. And he was, you know, it was just really, he bought into that dream and then that dream immediately turned on him because, you know, and, you know, when I had my first cut, huge cut with uh, Garth Brooks, I thought, well, this is it. Here I go. I've, this is how it is always going to be. Every quarter I'm going to make, you know, what, $90,000 or something. I, I just thought, well, here we go. But yeah. it doesn't often work that way. Uh, but fortunately for me, now, I don't know what happened to that 90000 but it didn't change me. But I had a much different upbringing than Rick had. I had a super stable upbringing by humble parents who, well, actually, my father was a minister. And, um, and they were people that, I mean, they gave their money. They didn't have much, but they gave it all away. Um, so I had a different ethic about, about this. I knew that money didn't make me. And I think Rick, Rick had a much more difficult childhood than me. And I think those things, the idea of this security coming his way, I just, you know, it was jackpot time for him. So he made some decisions that ultimately, hurt him and then of course the music business did not did not you know wasn't friendly to him in the long run he became a realtor but um but i think you know so even the ragamuffin idea was almost it was funny to watch because jimmy in truth was the real ragamuffin there in terms of uh mind mindset but all i can you know i'm going down some path i don't even know that i'm on all i will say is it, to wrap up about that evening of honoring rick and of supporting rick i i the only thing i felt was wrong and i knew it was rick's insecurity rick wanting to do the jesus record was really rick saying i don't think anybody's going to show up if it's an evening of my music so but i think if we do an evening of rich mullins music people will be there. And I think he was wrong about that, but I'm, but, you know, I had a friend who came, who didn't know who Rich was, who didn't know what Christian music was. And she was completely confused. But those of us who knew, well, all this is, I think I essentially that night was beautiful when Rick fell apart, when Rick finally just said, I, I don't have anything left. And he turned it over to Mark. That to me, yeah, was the most redemptive thing because Rick was a type A, I'm in control guy. You could see it in the way he walked, in his manner, in his command of anything he was doing. And on that night, he had command of nothing. And it was gorgeous. And, you know, there's pictures of me weeping up there, you know, trying to play and crying. I remember Smitty and I, when Rick was falling apart, I caught Michael W's eye. And we were both just wiping our tears away. So that was what made that night happen. It, you could you, you could have played, you know, the soundtrack from, I don't know, a Huckleberry Hound show. It wouldn't have made any difference. Yeah. It was really about what was going on. Well, in last week's episode, you, you had mentioned being on tour with Mullins in 94. And you said that that was when you, when you first started playing the accordion. 
And yeah. that, that was what ultimately led to your gig with Emmy Lou Harris, which is, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. That's pretty huge. How did that come yep. about? How, how did you end up with Emmy Lou? Well, you know, I played with Buddy Miller for um, quite a number of years. I was on many, you know, any, I would say, gosh, eight out of 10 Buddy or Julie records that you look at the credits on, I'm probably playing on those records that we're going to record in and lap steel on one of them. But um, so Emmy was aware of me in large part from working with buddy and that's how i actually got to know her just a little bit we did some you know we did some uh, she was at some shows of ours but um uh yeah she heard me she heard me playing accordion with buddy through the years and then i wound up before she invited me to be in her band i wound up playing on her record called all I intended to be, which is a beautiful, very folky record, um, probably, probably from 2007. Maybe it came out in 2008. I can't remember. Anyhow, um, but yeah, so me seeing accordion in a junk shop in Wheaton, Illinois, and thinking, yeah, it can't be that hard, and it'll probably, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how how fundamental it would actually be for the Rich Tour. I'm sure I played a lot of it on there, and then uh, to play it uh, with Emmy, I mean, you know, that that led from me, you know, the trajectory was me thinking who would ever want to play an accordion to maybe I should be open to this to, oh, now I'm playing with Emmylou Harris to honer accordions, giving me, a, you know, a five thousand dollar instrument wow. uh, to, you know. So, yeah. So my mantra is gen generally yes, unless there's some moral complication. My mantra is going to be yes. Wow. Um, so this new project, like, so tell us a little bit about that, because there's two records involved in this and that one of them was is brand new. And then another one was recorded two years ago. That, that was the first Red Dirt Boys band project. Right. Right. What's going on, uh, Joe, is that, first of all, I've got a, I do have my brand new record. Hornet's Nest is on Bandcamp as a download. And I need to put the CDs and LPs up there. I just haven't had time to do that. So there is a brand new record, solo record, 2021 record of mine up there. Uh, although I guess I, I guess I, yeah, that's the newest for me as a soloist. And of course, 
Redrick Boys drummer and bass player play with me as well. Then when we're a quartet with Will Kimbrough, we, we are Red Dirt Boys. When we play with Emmy Lou, Emmy Lou Harrison or Red Dirt Boys, we also have a fiddler, uh, Eamon McLaughlin. But uh, when we, I was asked to do a Mark Hurd retrospective uh, with Americana artists. So of course, I don't know, 2015, 16, 17. And so I would hire the guys and, you know, like, let's say Rodney Crowell was going to come in and play. Well, I've got to, I have to hire the studio for the day. Rodney's going to take three hours tops. And now I've got another, you know, seven hours left. And so I would, I, I just said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we, uh, just start recording, you know, Will, bring your songs. Phil, bring your songs. Will and I wrote some songs. Chris Donahue contributed to that. And so on the, uh, basically on the heels of the Mark Hurd project, which was executive produced, meaning paid for by a fellow named Jeff Grantham, we made that first record. And, and we put out a very limited edition when we, did the Kayamo songwriter cruise uh, in 2018, I think maybe it was 19. So, you know, we pressed up 300 and then for a while we had it on Bandcamp for free. And then this past November, we had the opportunity to go to Blackbird studio and record there at a just insane price, insanely low price. Blackbird is probably, you know, one of, I would say the two best studios that I like to work at, uh, in town. And, uh, so we spent two days in the studio this fall, recorded, uh, 10 more songs. And, um, so there's basically 21 songs between these two albums. Uh, the packaging is going to include lyrics, uh, you know, a little lyric book. I always, when I make a record, even though, I mean, it's so limited how many people are actually going to buy a physical record, but I feel like they deserve a, a decent, you know, uh, uh, the CD should open up. You should be able to pull a CD out of one side, a lyric book out of the other. That's, you know, when you buy my records, that's what you get. And uh, at least since Providence. And then, uh, and we have vinyl as well. And so we've got less than a week left on our Indiegogo which is, uh, I guess if you, unless you can provide a link, which I'm sure you can, it's, uh, you know, if you Google Red Dirt Boys Indiegogo.com, you're going to find that record. But time is, by the, by the time anybody's watching this, there's probably going to be very little time left. But um, but we're funded, but we we obviously want more funding. And I think fans will love these records. They've got Emmy Lou on both records, uh, there's always going to be some kind of thread just because of where my head's at. And honestly, all of us, all of us are spiritual guys in one way or the other. But like there's a song on the first record called All Saints Day. Uh, you know, there, and there's another song called Religion, which is which Will and I wrote. Uh, 
the first line of which is how can you say you've got religion when you've got no soul to save i mean it's a great it's line intensely yeah. how can you say you got religion you got no soul to save greed and pride and avarice from your birth into your grave to the poor you've been a master to greed you've been a slave how can you say you've you got no soul to say. You know, it's really called, you know, if you're a religious person, why are you willing to send your kid to war? Why are you a gun nut? Why are you, uh, I mean, I won't go too down, too far down the rabbit hole, but it's all the questions that I have for people who share my faith. Why are you not worried about people who are hungry, you know, and, and it's funky. It's real good. It's great music. So. The uh, yeah, the, the I, I listened to some of the first record. It's great that that religion that one really stood out to me. The great lyrics. Um, Thank uh, you. All Saints, All Saints Day, another great song. Um, now, you've got a couple stretch goals, right? We've got a stretch goal. Yeah, that if we hit twenty thousand, which at this point I don't even know if that's likely, but if we hit twenty thousand, I think what we're going to do. And we may increase the we may you know we may uh, increase the benefit if we hit twenty I don't know but the initial thing is that everyone will get uh, a download of the twenty one songs in their original uh, work tape format I think a lot of people love to have a version of a song like like let's say. Um, what would be a good one that might have changed? Even All Saints Day, me just sitting at my piano, out of tune, playing what will become a song that Emmy Lou's singing on, and that's you know what you know uh, well performed. So I think that is what we offered initially. If we hit twenty five, I think I was going to send everybody an extra CD or download of. Um, of Mercyland Volume One, um, uh, or something like that, but I can't even remember just because um, we're not going to, you know, we're probably not going to hit. I'd love to say we're going to hit these goals, but if we hit twenty in the next two days or something, then I'll go for the big stretch goal. But right now, uh, I don't even know if it's worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard them, people. Um, so what was it, what was Emmy Lou's response to like you know you guys decided to do this make a record Oh fantastic. You know, Emmy Lou I've got to say is um you know you hear these nightmare stories about different artists that are difficult to work with um or some of us have even been at performances of people and just thought oh my gosh I hope this is just a bad night. I hope this person's not always like this but emmy lou is one of the most consistently good people i know i think of her as kind of like my cool older sister although uh i don't feel like she's that much older i mean she's five years older than i am um, um but yeah she's like your cool older sister uh and she's become a good friend over the last dozen years but when we, I went to her, cause I'm, I'm the guy, you know, uh, that will, 
I'm not the guy that, that, that goes to management to negotiate money or I'm not that guy, but I am the guy that will go to Emmy and say, Hey, will you sing on this? Or so I went to her and I said, Hey, Red Dirt Boys. Uh, or I just said, Hey, uh, Chris and Brian and Will and I are going to make a record. And we'd like to call it Red Dirt Boys just because it makes sense. But I said, I want to get your blessing. I want to make sure that you're okay with this. And she said, only if I can sing on it. And I was kind of like, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So she's on, you know, she's on uh, All Saints Day. And then she's on a song on the new record called The Real Deal, which is also the name of the new record. Um, And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I've just, you know, I don't know how long we'll keep playing. and so we haven't done much in the last year at all. We have a f- very sketchy schedule coming up. So I, it's not work that I, you know, I, my life does not depend on Emmy or anyone. I mean, you cannot be a musician and just think like if you're in Garth Brooks band, you, you make a real mistake. If you think, well, this is it this will carry me through forever, you know, and um, you have to really take a day at a time, but I love playing with her. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not sitting there wishing it would end by any means. It's good. It's good stuff. Well, that, that leads me to another question. Cause I mean, this, this, I know this last year has been, it's been tough for everybody, but especially for musicians. Um, you know, how, how has that impact been on you just uh you know, from, even from just from a musical sense, is, is, is there, you find more work from, you know, yeah, home studio or? Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a home recording. Thank you for asking. I've got a home recording situation. And today, after you and I speak, I will go into my studio and I will overdubs on a guy's record who is living in Dubai. Yesterday, I played on a record of a guy that lives in Orcas, Washington. Um, so, and, you know, so I do a couple of sessions, another guy in LA yesterday as well. So I do sessions for people, like even if, if there's if there's someone out there who's like, hey, would you play piano on something? Uh, who's just happens to be listening to this. So absolutely. You know, um, now that hasn't been a living, but it's put, it's put food on the table and then um uh creatively it's been an amazing year i will be i'm going to kickstart a record uh you know i'm still waiting for vinyl to come in by the way on my hornet's nest kickstarter so as soon as that comes in then i'm done and then i think in august or september i will kickstart a record that I actually recorded last week. So I, so creatively I've, I'm on cloud nine. I'm the most prolific that I've ever, the last, I would say four years, five years, I guess, since summer 2016, when I started writing my Providence record, I've been more prolific than ever. And, you know, I'm, I, I have been sustained by mercy, uh, and I did 
I, I have wound up writing the, the next record is all love songs, you know, because if you listen to my music, there's always going to be an edge. There's always going to be even Providence, which is the love letter to where I grew up. There's it, it, it has its, rea- you know, real moments of snarkiness um, and open heart, which is kind of a love song thing is really about, it's more about loss than you would realize on the surface. And then, then there's a jazz record as well, but then there's Hornet's Nest. Hornet's Nest is like pulls no punches. It is about betrayal. It's about death. It's about loss and it is about redemption, but you've got to sit through nine songs of everything else before you get to it. This new record, which I think is going to be called bliss is about love. And it is just about how good it is to be loved and how wonderful it is to be on the same page as someone. And that came out, that came about, those songs were written, you know, within, I guess, maybe the last seven months. So COVID for me, apart from the fact of not hugging my kids until yesterday when I had lunch with them uh, and not my daughter, Maddie, I hadn't seen her face in over a year um, uh, until yesterday. Uh, Apart from stuff like that, I've made the most of it. I've painted like that painting up there of the horse, you know, you know, so, I mean, I've, I have not, I have not suffered, you know, and um, I, but I know, but I have, there are people in my life who have passed away, funny enough, not of COVID and some with COVID, but John, certainly John Prine was, that's horrible, you know, a number of great artists, um, but then, you know, loss is with us all the time. Death is just part of this beautiful life, but the next record it'll that'll be that'll be kickstarted i think in august or september and the vinyl will have been ordered so that it shows up hopefully by christmas so you know yeah i'm busy well i do want to talk a little bit about open heart you mentioned the record open heart um as a phenomenal album by the way thank you i uh i do some work with utr media and uh oh okay yeah, and every year we, uh, Dave has us. We go through our, our list of everything that's been released in the last year, and and that was, I mean, that was on on my list for definitely one of the best albums of, uh, of the year. Thank you, thank you, Joe. One of the tracks that I thought was one of the best songs, Re- "Requiem for a Dream." Man, what a song! You're gonna grieve it for a long, long time. Your open heart was the scene of the crime. You keep asking the question, why, why, why? Baby, your guess is as good as mine. How do you know? How to let go? And the thing that I, I took away with that record was, I mean, I know that's coming from a, a deeply personal place. And obviously you couldn't have, in any way, none of us could have knew the year that was ahead. 
but man, that song was like an anthem for, for me last year. Um, I lost a lot of people. Yeah. I lost a lot of people too, you know, from COVID and, and, and sorry. And from other reasons. And man, what a, um, a beautiful record, uh, um, of grief and, and loss and, and pain and then, and love. And there's so much going on there. You, can you tell me a little bit about that album? <laughs> well, First of all, I'm deeply touched by what you've said and the thought that this song in particular would be reflective of that year is a really interesting and kind of wonderful perspective to get from you. When I wrote that record, and actually I need to put this on Bandcamp, but like um, I, I probably need to... Uh, I probably need to do like a uh, uh, a blow by blow, like as the record's playing, I need to do a narrative like I've done for uh, Hornet's Nest and for Mercyland Volume 1, you know, where you hear, just hear me talking about the music as it goes by. But that song, Requiem for a Dream, the whole record, I started writing that record because... You know, I don't know if you know anything about the Enneagram, but um, for those who do, my personality type uh, is definitely um, inclined towards romanticism. And um, so I had lost someone in 2017. It was a tremendously difficult loss. It was a woman who was never going to marry me who, uh, you know, there was, you know, she, there was some of this and there was a lot of this and from the beginning. And um, so, you know, we were involved for about nine years. Uh, this is someone I met uh, or started seeing about four years after my divorce. And I'm just going to give you a parenthesis here for anybody who is like starting a new relationship, this is just free right now, but for someone starting a new relationship, it's like, what are the things that bother you about this person? What are the signals that you are receiving right now that you hope are going to change? Whatever those things are, they are not going to change. They are not going to go away. In a lot of ways, the relationship it, right now in this moment of bliss is maybe as good as it's going to be in terms of the things that you're questioning. And so, but I was naive and I was hungry for just a wonderful relationship. And so I kind of shrugged off the things like, I will never marry you. I just sort of thought, you know, of course you will, you know, and those things never happened. So by the time she was diagnosed with cancer nine months before she actually was taken away by cancer, um, it was apparent that everything she said in the first week of dating her was, had been true, you know? And so I wasn't allowed to talk about her illness. I wasn't allowed to share with a friend, hey, she's dying. I need your friendship. Uh, versus most, I think most healthy people, when they're ill, they are going to say, do whatever you got to do. If you got to tell somebody, tell them, you know. And um, 
I'm making this very long. I'm sorry. Um, so during that, so when I, during her exit, which was very much a gigantic F you to me, uh, because I had finally just gotten worn out. I'd finally just, she, there was a lot of unkindness and I finally said, you know, I love you, but I'm not doing this anymore. Anything you need, I'll give you, but I'm not, I, I, I can't do this thing anymore. Well, that turned into, he broke up with me because I have cancer and I had an entirety community, entire community hating me because of this myth. So I wound up writing what became Hornet's Nest. My most recent record, Hornet's Nest, was actually written before Open Heart. And I just did not even dare record it. I just, it was, it was such a heavy record. I just thought, I don't know what I'll do with it. Meanwhile, she dies about four months later. Uh, someone's at my Christmas party and I'm, and I'm interested started investing ourselves in that. And I, and I'm grateful for it. We, we kind of, you know, we needed, we needed, we both needed someone in each other's lives saying you're attractive. You're a good person. I'd like to spend time with you and me being my personality type. I started just kind of writing these tunes, you know, and I had an awareness that this was just going to be temporary. But of course, that's never your hope when you're enjoying someone. You're never thinking it's just temporary. <laughs> well, it's all temporary. Um, by the time I recorded the record, the thing was over. I mean, it ended well, you know, ended in, in friendship. Then I had this crew helping me put the record out. And it was a publicist named Jackie Marishka and a little sort of record company type person named uh, Stephanie and uh, who has a company called Soundly. And Stephanie's like younger than my daughter, Maddie, you know, she's um, maybe 26. And she said to me, Hey, have you realized when we were just talking about marketing the record, she said, have you realized that you wrote this record to your own heart? And I'm like, not at all. And she was the one that pointed out to me, this is a, this is the, this, these are the songs of a grieving man. And I went back and I listened to the very song you're speaking of. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Um, Requiem for a dream. Very first song on the record. Uh, and that song is actually slower than what I would usually open a record with, by the way, but I knew it had to open. You're going to grieve it. Now imagine me writing this to myself which I was unaware of. You're going to grieve it for a long, long time. Your open heart was the scene of the crime. Uh, you keep asking the question, why, why, why? Baby, your guess is as good as mine. How do you know how to let go? And so I didn't even know I was writing anything poignant. You know, I thought I was talking to someone about uh, the, the demise of their situation um, which of course I was, but anyway, it is an intriguing prospect that I might've written this, this to myself. You know? But you know, it, it makes so much sense though, because you know, when you, when you look at your relationship with that person, the, the connection was built, the, that bridge was built on loss 
and grief. Yeah, totally. So, and it's easier. It's a lot easier to say those things to somebody else than to say them to yourself sometimes, even if mm -hmm. you need it. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, be it's a beautiful record. Uh, yeah, Open Heart. Uh, anybody listening, definitely go, go check that one out. That is, that's good stuff. I'm, I really appreciate that. I do want to let you know, you know, I, I, I don't know if your people know this, but um, I play a show six o'clock central time on Sunday evenings. I do a Facebook show uh, where I just, and I've been doing it over a year now, every night, every, every Sunday night. And um, so a lot of the new, the, a lot of the new love songs I've been, you know, I've just been, practicing them on there and people the response is really wonderful to that stuff because we do want to hear about good happening and you know so a record like open heart i mean it's just sweet enough and positive enough even positive enough that you stay with it plus it has i think probably the heaviest tune musically i've ever written is probably monk and i can't even believe i wrote that song but you know, I'm real proud of that. If we can even take credit for that kind of stuff, the new record that I'm working on, I'm just so happy about because it's just happy. Uh, it's not happy in a lame, sappy way. It's happy in a super hopeful way, uh, even an encouraging way. And then Hornet's Nest, the record I wrote before Open Heart, is intense because. I don't know about you, Joe. I know for most of most of us have broke something's broken somewhere. Yeah. We have a friend we don't talk to anymore. We have a sibling we don't speak with anymore. We have someone who died and gave us the bird on their way out. Um, and so that record tackles those relationships. And you know, two of those 10 songs are about my estranged relationship with my brother whom I haven't spoken with in eight years. I don't, and I don't mind talking about it. It's kind of like, I do wonder if, if it'll ever get better. And probably if I keep writing songs about it, it probably won't. Um, and then of course the uh, seven about this woman who passed away and then one just, totally made up um that's a duet with cindy morgan that's really fun but i love i love the hornet's nest record because i feel like and this is what i hated about christian music and why i'm glad i'm not involved in christian music you really couldn't talk about a reality of desperation a reality of need a reality of poverty you really had to pretty much stay within the bounds of what I think is a fantasy of just how great life in God is. And it's kind of like, no, life in God is not, it's, <laughs> it, it might not be any greater than life, not in God, <laughs> you know, it's a journey. And so, so to me, you know, uh, the new record is a, is a real valid statement of loss and it is redemptive. the last two songs on the on the record are grateful the other ones are pretty much um there's some tongue-in-cheek stuff you know one of them's called mom always liked you best which is very funny although if 
if it were written for me, I wouldn't think it was funny, but, um, but I, that, you know, the, the guy who's making records right now, me is not, I'm not wasting time now, you know, so you can buy my records before Providence. They're very sweet. They're good records, largely co-written. If, if I did them within the two thousands, there are a lot of co-written songs. The new stuff is just written by me. It's my response to life. And, um, and yeah, I've never been happier in terms of creating, even making a record like Hornet's Nest was a joy, even though it was like, holy cow, I hope people can handle it, you know, but we'll see. <laughs> Last time we said hello, did either of us know it was goodbye? I wish I'd said Still swirling in my head Too late to try There's something to be treasured I'll look back and I'll take pleasure But it's gonna take a while I keep my lights down low Cause last time we said hello Was goodbye All right, man, this has been really fun. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. All right, Joe, good to hear from you. I'm hoping you hit that 20 grand. Yep, appreciate it, man. Blessings. You too, take care. Take care. Tears flowing from our eyes Cause it was true I'm going through the motions Of moving on from my devotion But it's gonna take a while Baby, did you know Last time we said hello Was goodbye So once again, thanks to Phil Madera. You can check out philmadera.net. Check out his band, Red Dirt Boys, Emmy Lou Harris's backing band. Uh, they have an Indiegogo campaign, so we definitely want to direct your way there in the final days of their campaign. You can check that out. They're doing a double album. But now we want to offer you an extended conversation with Jimmy Abeg and Ben Pearson with their memories about Rick Elias. So we've got to go play, well, we want to go play. We, we meet at Ben Pearson's house 
and we rehearsed in the basement and Ben's our new rhythm guitar player and we're going to play a big uh, Catholic youth event in New York City and I think that's where we met Joe Cook is on the way there we played a gig up yeah, in... Yeah, it was like in Delaware or someplace. Yeah, somewhere up... Somewhere Father up. Mike. Yeah, and I think Joe Cook... And then and we played another wife. one before that. Yeah. Maybe it was that one. Yeah. So we played a, 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 a little tree of gigs on the way up and maybe nothing on the way back. What was but the name of the, the Catholic... Um, event? I, we, we played in that beautiful... <laughs> church in Manhattan. Yeah. The basement of that church in Manhattan. I don't know the I name. I cannot of remember that name. It was around the corner from Elaine's. I do remember. Yeah. Yeah, we went to Elaine's after. Yeah. Rick was the, uh, I don't know, consummate professional for getting the band rehearsed and in tip-top shape. For the next <laughs> appearance, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I, I have a really great memory of Rick in the uh, at the event. We couldn't quite get the monitors to work right, and over time, you get this kind of built-in sense of if if it's not working right, oh well. Yeah, yeah. Just get it so I can at least hear each other. But with Rick, it it really wanted to be right. <laughs> yeah, he he wanted it to be right, and for some reason, he could not. The monitors could not be any more terrible. That yeah, night. they couldn't have been. Worse. And to the point where Rick took it personally. Yeah, and he was convinced that this the sound engineer front of house had it in for him. <laughs> I swear, he's got it. He's, it he hates me. He hates me. He's doing this deliberately. Does your monitor sound like this? <laughs> oh, man, what a case. Oh, so what's man. great is after the gig, and the gig was really a blast. I remember just a throng of people at the end. It yeah. was it was a it was joyful. A it was a beautiful. Yeah, it was really yeah, fun. Yeah, man. We, so we, then we, we packed everything night. up, which is also a drag. But, uh, yeah, and the, loading the U-Haul on the streets yeah. of Manhattan is always, Bummer. always an experience. Yeah, you'll never forget. But it, as it happens, we, we had a chance to walk around the corner, and uh, I guess we were going to get a beer. We're waiting for the monks who had hosted it. They're gonna, we're going to sleep at their the abbey. Monastery. Yeah, the little abbey. Uh, their little thing over in Bronx, maybe? Or? I, I can't remember quite. I yeah. think it was up. It was north. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was north. So yeah, straight up. Yeah, straight up. So it was. A but uh, so they said, "Well, go get a beer at Elaine's, and then when we're done, we'll come get you and go to the hotel or the sleeping area." And uh, the we, monastery. Yeah. yeah, and we walk into that that bar, and it. I guess it was. It hadn't really occurred to me that that was. The, the Elaine's. Elaine's. Yeah, yeah. Woody yeah. Allen and a... Frequented... Yeah, I mean, know, just the, yes. the, the whole 
backdrop of fame. And so we walk in and it's me and Rick and uh, Mark and Aaron and Ben and maybe Connolly. Yeah, Connolly. Yeah, Connolly might have been there. Our, our, we always had a guy named Stephen Connolly would help us in the Northeast with gigs and help with sound and yeah. routing and relationships and cops if you needed them. Remember his brother? And, he's a fixer. Yeah, he's a fixer. <laughs> <laughs> what was Stephen Connolly? He's a fixer. So anyway, we walk in and here this big table with a bunch of people sitting at it and they're like, hey! They're starting to shout at Rick and I. And yeah. They were eyeing, they were iron, uh, eyeing our whole group up for a while and Elaine she's a yeah. rather large woman yeah. and she kind of commands space you know uh, mentally she's a brilliant lady and um, she was I, I noticed her kind of in the group up and uh, and she's talking to her a friend of hers that is sitting there and she motions me to come over and so I go over and she goes hey honey are you guys from Nashville and I go, yeah. And she hits her friend in the arm. She goes, ah, I told you. So she had us made, man. She did. <laughs> Are you guys rock stars? <laughs> she just saw Nashville, I guess, man. I guess we, we had a patina of Nashville over us. Um, but yeah. Fun. Fun, Fun memory. So then we go over to the, to the monastery and ended up Sharon, they make beer there, so we had yeah. to sample their beer. And oh, yeah, we were all in the kitchen back then. We almost everybody smoked, yeah. Aaron smoked a cigar, yeah. You smoked a pipe, yeah. Mark and I and Rick smoked cigarettes, drinking, and yeah. the monks were all smoking. And they were cooking food. It was, it was, it was crazy, experience. and it was like four in the morning. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Rick Elias, if you can hear us, we love you. You know it's wild too. I remember <laughs> being amazed that uh, Ricky got up that same morning and went to mass, early mass. Did he? He did. Yeah. Like, he had a Catholic faith. How did there. you do that? You know. But uh, yeah, that was a good. What a trip. Yeah. That um, playing with the rags was probably. Uh, as far as musically was a high point for me I um, it all came about when uh, we were having a get together after um, Tommy Howard died mm -hmm. at my house and what I thought was going to be kind of our little gathering uh, about eight to ten of us you know that we had when Rich passed away at my place, uh, we thought that's what we were doing. And what happened, the word got out. There was about 50 people at my house yeah, that night that was at Tommy's wake. And we had, a, we had a great wake for Tommy Howard that night. Yeah. And um, anyway, everybody was pretty lubricated. And uh, that night, we were pretty late. We were having smokes on the back porch and the guys were talking about uh you know hitting the road there were some legs coming up that they needed to to do and and I kind of just jokingly I'd been playing in another band at the time but I I just it, that was dissolving and 
I said, hey, you guys don't need a rhythm player. And I said it jokingly. And Rick was like, yeah. And I kind of thought, left it there, you know, that night. And ha ha, yeah, sure. And um, anyway, the next morning he calls. And he's like, you're serious, right? And I'm like, yeah, but are you sure? And so that's how it all started. And I always felt like the kid... You know, that is the last to get picked in the in in you know for football for yeah. tag football and and uh, Rick was the guy that picked me. You know, and I I, I did that that did a lot for me. Yeah, I, I needed that at the time. And that was uh, great. yeah, playing with these guys was was just an amazing thing. Having having been behind the lens for so many years, and then then being uh, having the opportunity to. to uh, to play was amazing, and and like Jimmy said, I mean Rick was just he he was like the consummate pro, you know. You, it just guys, can we just be a little more professional here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, it, it was it was a a beautiful thing to be around. Yeah. And uh, I think one thing that the the biggest thing that that caught caught me in the, you know by surprise was the day that um, Rick called I was on my way to see my mom and uh, she was you know about a year out uh, or actually no not a year out she's just a couple months away from uh, passing and uh, I was on my way to see my mom and I get this call from Rick and he's like hey Benny um, hey I, I need you to any chance you could come by and uh, I need to I need to talk to you and it, I went by that night and uh, of course he said that he had been diagnosed you know mm. with cancer and um, and we we talked you know way into the night uh, into the early morning and um, it was you know, it was just an amazing thing to, to, to be with somebody who had just heard, you know, just found out that they, they had, you know, cancer. Mm. And um, anyway, we agreed I'd come back the, the next night or a, a couple more, you know, nights after that. But I think it was the next night, actually, I went out, back out and... Um, he said, well, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, what we were talking about last night. And he said, I, I, I want you to know that uh, I know I need to make amends. Mm. And I got a list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he just said, I, I just wanted you to know that, that I'm... I'm going to start working on this list. <laughs> and it's like, holy shit, man. I'm just like, you know, this is incredible. Super you know, productive. and he did have a list. And he started going through that list, making amends uh -huh. with people. And it just blew my mind. It's like what, it, it was, you know, very cinematic in uh -huh. nature. I mean, it was, it was epic. <laughs> As far as this guy aggressively going after making things right with people, unbelievable. And uh, that's you know, I mean, that's the that's the big part of it for me. You mm -hmm. know that 
the big takeaway for me was, you know, seeing that, that transformation, you know, of desire to make things, you know, to, to be at peace with everybody that, you know, he felt that he was at odds with, you know. And he did it. And it was beautiful to behold. Shocking, really, to be Yeah, boy, that's a long one. That for for many years I called Rick every month mm. to just check in and felt like we had the kind of relationship that asked for some kind of maintenance. Even though I knew something wasn't quite right. Not sure what. Yeah. And uh, he just never picked up or called, you know. Yeah. But that's okay because I felt like yeah, I'm I'm doing my part to keep the tree growing somehow. And uh, that time period you're talking about, finally. I mean, after more than 10 years of... You guys, you were on that list. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> I can't even say what he said. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, this is the Doomba mm -hmm. that has been harassing you for years. Yeah. yeah. I just want you to know I'm really, really sorry. And I wish we had the time to get back to the beginning where it was all not that I don't I don't know why he felt like it would be easy for him cuz I could hear how it wasn't. Yeah. Because the the other Rick still kind of owns the joint. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that willful desire to redeem and our relationship wasn't that broken. No. It was just no. sort of dented. Yeah. Yeah. And unlike a well, mutual the friend of, of Jesus our... record and the whole aftermath of yeah. after Mullins passed away. Yeah, I mean, that we was a had... rough, those were rough years. Those man. were hard to carry, and, and he, he was... took it personally. Yeah. And he felt like he was a horrible imposter. Mm -hmm. And he lived in shame for all sorts of unknown reasons. But that side of, of him drew lines. I, on more than one occasion, I remember him saying how he had, you know, jettisoned. Yeah. So-and-so. So-and-so yeah, or whatever. And, yeah. you know, and one of our mutual friends was one of the jettis early jettisons. Mm -hmm. And to watch that relationship come back and bloom. Shocking. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it, 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 it is the emblematic, uh, result of redemptive grace yeah 
and the power of forgiveness yeah. in, in the world. Seeing that play out in reality. What, you know. and, and the dude, the main actor in the play, yeah. there, were, there were no, uh, what do you call that? Uh, what do you call them? Um, support, there were no supporting actors or actresses. Right. It, yeah. it, was, it was a, yeah. a whirlwind mm-hmm. that was unbelievably paradoxical because of the star of the show was Rick Elias. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The irony to me is just yeah. certain. It's the way it's Christ-like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like what? He's yeah. walking yeah. on water. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so yeah. miraculous. Yeah. yeah. This person yeah. who is yeah. being being repossessed yeah. by this yeah. capacity for love. Yeah. And having care. just done the Job album. Yeah. You know, I mean all those years culminating in, in the Joe he does that project. Yeah. The Joe project. And then this happens. Oh my gosh. And it, it's uh, it's like you you hear about it from the pulpit. Yeah. All your life and you yeah. rarely see it. You don't get to see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I see I see shit more yeah. now that I'm blind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that tells you something. It's sure, it's sure. that truth is in the atmosphere. You know, and the thing the beautiful thing about Rick, uh that I noticed when I first met him is just his charisma and how he seemed connected to a different pulse yeah that i i guess was really appealing to a certain gob of people he had this this savoir faire and freewheeling ah he just is a classic shit yeah that 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 oh he's man. like the missing member of the rat pack in, yeah. in a different time space. He, yeah. he was born into the wrong time space. He, sh- he should have been running with those guys. <laughs> he, he was that, he was he was that, that guy. He was, that too. <laughs> he was so funny. He didn't, he didn't really... He didn't like sharing the limelight. <laughs> you know, the, the, the funniest part about and I think this was true for all of the rags that that you had to face the boss i.e. Rich Mullins and that was a paradox too because he intentionally had artists who were sort of relegated to the fringes but had an artistic Arc were the guys that he wanted in his band, and and at the same time, you know, the music business is full of of self uh, doubt, and to overcome that self worth, so there's often lots of ego Mm. floating around, either because of insecurity or because of superiority. Mm-hmm. And you kind of you kind of measure one of the great things about Rick that I also love was his ability 
to in a way see the way I saw where he would read a situation. <laughs> and he had a lot of street smarts, unlike a lot of folks who come up in a more, I don't know, docile uh, upbringing. He, he was rough around the edges, man. He had, yeah. he had street smarts and oh, could, yeah. could really find his way through a crowd, not to mention he was 6'4". That helped. You know, yeah. some of that was, I'm sure, very useful. But the funny, the funny turn in a person's life that makes them both yin and yang, you know, lovable and just toxic you know it's like both ends of the spectrum yeah and the poetry and the music and the delivery holds up yeah you know oh, it's totally. just it's unbelievable yeah and it, it he he loved things to be really tight and right but with just enough falling yeah. off the tracks yeah some some rough. You know, when, when it was starting to sound like the Stones, you know, or uh, it, it was fun. It was really fun. It's just funny. You know, you get you get buried in the in the clothes you die in, I guess. Hmm. So, happy birthday, Rick. Happy birthday, Ruth. Well, thanks so much for listening with us today. Again, check out Phil Madera's music, his Indiegogo campaign with the Red Dirt Boys. In the coming months, we are pleased to uh, keep our focus on Rick Elias's music and our episode will be an in-depth look or at least an in-depth conversation about his first solo record, Rick Elias and the Confessions. Anything to say about that, Joe? Yeah, just that I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, really digging into that record with you and uh, having, a, having a good discussion. Also, I think, you know, we, we may have some bonus episodes, additional bonus episodes coming up in the next month or two. So keep an eye out for that. If uh, people haven't, uh, they should subscribe to this podcast. They can follow us on Facebook. I think, are we on Twitter? We're on Twitter. No, I don't think we are. I'm on Twitter. And I, yeah, we don't think we have a... Follow, follow Chris on Twitter. Post Consumer Chris. That's my Twitter handle. You know, there you go. Uh, we, we're trying to find the people that would be interested in these stories that we're telling. And, and we, as you can tell, we are, we're not specifically focused on Mullins' music at the moment. And instead, we're, we're telling the stories that are, that are surrounding him. And that's, that's where Phil Madera comes in today. And, uh, and we're, in the, we're in the peripheral. We're in, we're in the purple. Oh, th this, this is where uh, we're, we're in the Mullins verse, you know? Yes, yes, yes. We're deep in the Mullins verse. <laughs> yeah. We're just trying to tell the full story as best as we know how. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we'll see you next month on Between the Songs. <laughs>